0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Dr. Gustav Sederloff about his book titled The Low Carbon Contradiction, Energy Transition, Geopolitics and the Infrastructural State in Cuba, published by the University of California Press in the latter half of 2023. This book, I think, does a bunch of interesting things about Cuba, but with some broader repercussions um, as well. So this should be of interest to anyone interested in how countries deal with energy transitions, um, how Cuba dealt with the end of the Cold War, uh, how different countries talk to their populations about energy um, and use and various things, and a lot more. So, Gustav, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us about your book.
0: Well, thanks so much for having me, Miranda.
1: Could you start us off, please, with introducing yourself a bit and explaining why this book?
0: Well, so I'm a geographer by training. And um, well, I guess, as you know, traditionally, that's a a discipline which is split into physical geography, which is a a natural science and human geography, which is a social science. Uh, But I try to work across that divide sort of in the borderlands Uh, And I want to understand how how humans and societies interact with the environment and have done so in in different places and at different times. Um, And I guess in in our time of runaway climate change, I'm I'm especially interested in, in energy use. So how can we conceptualize energy as something that's about physics and ecology, but also how we can integrate that with an understanding of politics and the economic mechanisms that make energy flow globally and locally and cultural ideas about energy use so a very sort of interdisciplinary way of of approaching energy and, and climate change um, and i guess that sort of broader interest was one of the starting points for why i wanted to write the book um, but then in, in a more direct way um i came across this um really puzzling report when i was traveling to cuba for the first time um and that sort of set my mind off and uh, Well, there's been a number of of similar reports saying the same thing since. Uh, But I was reading the the WWF's Living Planet Report. And they had created this this new kind of graph. And so so on one axis, they put a measure of human development, which was the UN's Human Development Index. And then on the the other axis, they put a measure of environmental impact, which was um, ecological footprints. And so essentially, they tried to incorporate a measure of, ecological impact in a conventional measure of, of development. Uh, and then what they did, if you if you bear with me, it was sort of a, a technical explanation, but they said that if you have a human development index over 0.8, you according to the UN, you've achieved very high development. And if you have an ecological footprint between 1.8, well, you live within the planetary boundaries, at least at that time. So you kind of lived sustainably. So that meant that there was this one area in the graph that if you were in it, you had a very high level of development and you lived sustainably. So the WWF said that well, you had achieved sustainable development. And what shocked me when I was reading this um, sort of on my way to Cuba, was that there was only one country in that area. So only one country was sustainably developed. And that was the socialist state of Cuba. and so, basically, then I I wanted to write the book to see how can we understand that and the Cuban experience through a, a kind of long-term ethnographic study, and what can we learn about in, um, energy transitions from from that.
1: Hmm. That's a really interesting way to come to this book. So thank you for giving us um, that sort of background of how you went, hang on, wait, what about this? Wait, that's strange. And kind of kept poking at it. So um, kind of building on from that, can you tell us about the contradiction of energy transitions in Cuba that really are kind of the core and the heart of this book?
0: Mm. Well, so I mean, based on that WWF report, something quite remarkable must have happened in Cuba. Um, and well, I think one of the most exciting and intense debates going on on the radical left these days when it comes to transitions is it's that kind of trench warfare that is going on between those who argue for a degrowth future and those who argue for an eco-socialist alternative or like a Green New Deal, as, as it's some, sometimes called. Uh, and in degrowth circles, Cuba is actually often held up as a key example of, of a country that experienced a period of, of real life degrowth. Um, and I think this, this argument sets up one side of the contradiction. And I guess I should give some, some background, but, but the basic story is that so after the Cuban revolution in, in 1959, uh, well, Cuba started importing oil from the Soviet Union. And so the whole socialist project it was essentially based on that oil in an ecological sense. So all electricity was generated from it. Like all transport relied on petrol and diesel and, um, and Cuba's massive sugar industry depended on it. Uh, so during the 70s and 80s, Cuba it even became like Latin America's most oil dependent economy. Um, come the 90s, the Soviet Union collapses. And so for Cuba, this means that, well, they lost more than like 85 percent of all their crude oil supplies in just a few years. So the crisis was, I mean, it was huge, like economically and in human terms. And uh, as we know, many Cubans risked their lives to to flee the island. Uh, but for those remaining, well, they, of course, they needed to attempt this really quick, low carbon energy transition. Um, and I think those advocating degrowth, this is what they pick up on. Uh, and they will argue that these are the changes that made it possible for Cuba to, well, like a, a decade later, have a very high level of development and a low footprint. But then there is something really contradictory about this because if you if you spend a lot of time in Cuba, it's really rare to hear someone speak about the nineties in that way. I mean, I think I can count on like one hand the number of times I've heard the word degrowth or descrecimiento in in said, mentioned in Cuba. Um, and well, if you sort of look at the stats, Cuba is still heavily oil dependent. So like electricity is still produced to about ninety five percent from oil. Um, and well, as we speak, like our big power cuts across the country because of a lack of fuel, uh, which goes back to so, like the, the US blockade and turmoil in, in Venezuela. Uh, so there is something that sort of grates with that story of, of degrowth and, and uh, an energy miracle. So in Cuba, you'll hear other narratives. So if you if you speak to members of the Communist Party, they will usually run more of a kind of traditional socialist um, argument. So they'll say that despite the Soviet collapse, despite the US blockade, um, despite more and more intense hurricanes and social tensions, the revolution and the socialist states have survived. Um, and, and sometimes they'll also emphasize that well Cuba has taken big steps toward creating a more sustainable socialism. So a kind of eco-socialism investing in, in renewables and so on. Um, and as I said, if you speak to just Cubans in in the everyday context, um they will usually remember the 90s as this time of like really traumatic, deep crisis. So if that was successful degrowth, then it's like, well, no thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So I guess that sort of sets up the contradiction. So on the one hand, we have these persuasive narratives about an energy miracle and successful degrowth. And on the other, we have stories about eco-socialism, which is all about growth. And you have stories about Cuba being a place to escape from. So how can we understand that? in its complexity? Uh, Because I think we need to see some truth in in all of these stories. So how can we make sense of them?
1: Mm. No, those are some kind of big questions to pose for yourself. But of course, um, we now have the book that allows us to discuss through them. So I think um, kind of the point you made in that previous question that we can't kind of go straight to the nineties and understand what's happening then without the context of what happens before that is A a very important point. So I would like to kind of move chronologically a little bit um, through some of what happens before the 90s, and then we'll get there and investigate more of this degrowth stuff. Um, So can you take us back to the 50s and help us understand how electricity and energy consumption were conceptualized before the Cuban Revolution at the end of the 1950s?
0: Mm, So, well, the time before the revolution, it's, it's... I mean, I must say it's just as interesting as the time after. Um, and I think from an, an academic perspective, we, we we still need to know more about it. Um, but electricity actually comes quite early to Cuba. Um, and well, that's not specific to electricity at such, but it's like it's, it's the case also with other modern infrastructure. So like um, railways were built in Cuba before they were built in Spain. And Spain obviously colonized Cuba at the time. Um, And well, how do you explain that? Well, it all goes back to sort of Cuba's role in the colonial economy as the world's largest sugar exporting colony. Um, And well, if you look at electricity and and energy consumption, I'd say there are probably two parts to how it was conceptualized before the revolution. Uh, So on the one hand, um, these small grids are are built in around the sugar mills uh, where they use the energy for for production. And those grids, they're also used to electrify railways that bring sugar from the mills to the ports. Um, So electricity, it really serves the colonial economy in that way. Um, And in the late 50s, there's actually more than than 60 small grids like this uh, across the country. And almost all of them are owned by uh, foreign sugar companies. Uh, Then on the other hand, you have investments in cities. And here, I think it's, you you can't really understand Cuban history without also understanding its its links to the U.S. because uh, it's really one more or less integrated history. Um, so, well, so if you take one example um, that I discuss in the book, so we know Thomas Edison is like the the inventor of the light bulb, and and also he set up the world's first um, centralized electricity system in New York, I think like in 1882 or so. Um, but in the months before he did that, he installed electric lights uh, in central Havana in, in a cafe because he wanted to get investors to his business in the U.S. So it, it kind of goes to show how important the Cuban market was um, for um, U.S. entrepreneurs. Um, then in Cuba, electrification, well, it, it sort of happens quite fast and, and it's entirely driven by profit. And. Um, so the result is that it's the entertainment districts and sort of neighborhoods of the white elite and middle class that get the connections. Um, so, well, you could say that sort of the geography of the infrastructure, it, it, it reflected, but also came to reproduce these inequalities of, of class and race. So the infrastructure was sort of productive of, of social difference. Um, and then what happens is that, well, US and European utilities, well, they needed to find New markets to continue expanding in, in the 20s and 30s. Um, and there was a, a subsidiary to General Electric, which uh, was Edison's company. And they started buying up almost all of these Cuban urban systems and started to interconnect them. And so, with time, they developed a, a monopoly, which is called the Compañía Cubana de Electricidad, so the Cuban electricity company, um, which has its headquarters in, in Florida. Um, and that then that sort of that arrangement, it, it becomes one of the the main targets for Fidel Castro and the revolutionary movements, uh, because it, it really goes to illustrate how Cuba is a, a U.S. neo colony. Um, and I think at some point Fidel he he I don't remember the quote exactly, but he he says something like the, the monopoly they they only care about profit and and profit aside, they don't care if people have to live sort of in darkness for the rest of their lives. Um, and the implication is obviously that things will be different after the revolution
1: well so i think the obvious question then is are they right <laughs> so I, I think it makes sense with what you've explained so far why the cuban revolutionary government wants to fix this but can you tell us a bit more about kind of what exactly they want to fix? you know the economic aspects the social aspects the political aspects what are their goals with the electrical? Um, sector and then of course the obvious answer the obvious question to what extent did they achieve these goals?
0: Mm. So well they have quite a, a, a radical vision um, and I mean I think it's sort of amusing that today when we discuss energy transitions and climate transitions um, it's like the solutions they so often they seem to boil down to increasing electrification it's like we should have electric cars and e-bikes and uh, smart cities and smart grids and all things digital because it's so efficient. because uh, if you if you look to Cuba in the 60s and, and to the Soviet bloc even earlier, it was also all about electricity and electrification because uh, they thought it was a, a, a crucial energy form for building socialism. Um, and so well in Cuba one of the first things the the new government does is well they, they nationalize the utility, and then they set out on on a really ambitious electrification campaign, um, and well, sort of politically and economically, why they do that is because they're inspired by Lenin, uh, and but I personally think this is really interesting because in in, in Marxist Leninist thought, and not least as it developed in Cuba, um, an energy transition is a, a really key event, um, and well, it has to do with the idea of development itself, about sort of going from being a this poor agrarian economy to a modern industrial one. Um, and the Cubans, they, well, they, they picture sort of a, a transition from this organic biomass-based economy where people are, are out in the sugar fields cutting cane with machetes to a fossil fuel-based electric economy where they can use modern machinery uh, to do that for them instead. And so that energy transition it's it's really intris- intrinsic to a, a much larger historical transitional trajectory, which is for them the transition to communism. So to reach communism, you need that energy transition. Um, and well, so one really important um, idea for them is that so under under capitalism, electrification and, and automation, well. It, it competes with workers for employment. So like the machine take machines take people's jobs and they leave us without an income. Um, but under socialism, they're saying that well automation can instead liberate humans from the need to work at all. It's like when the machines work in the interest of the workers, they free up time for having fun, like leisure and culture and and going to the cinema. Um, and I think well there are, again, there's like many really striking quotes about this. And um, there was there's one from Lenin that I I looked up again. And um, he says something like, like, the age of steam is the age of the bourgeoisie and the age of electricity is the age of socialism. Um, and then you'll have someone like Che Guevara in, in Cuba who was the, the minister of industries after the revolution. Uh, and he would say like, we have to think of electronics as a function of socialism. And it's a function of the transition to communism. Um, and, well, I guess to sort of sum up, why why is that? So that's basically two things they, they want to achieve. And actually, they, they do achieve to, to a large extent in the course of the 70s and 80s. So one is to increase the levels of energy consumption because uh, for them, that's sort of necessary for creating a modern industrial socialist economy. Um, and the other thing is that they, they want to build a national interconnected infrastructure. So after they've nationalized the utility, they continue to kind of integrate all of these uh, many grids. Um, because if you have one infrastructure that integrates all households and all workplaces in one system, well, then the state controlling it can also distribute energy equally to everyone. So that's, that's kind of a, a radical vision of energy justice built into the electrification campaign. And by the late 80s almost all households have have a, um, a connection to the national grid
1: which is really quite a change and um, but given the centrality of this project to achieving communism that you've explained that really does make sense and i think then allows us to go into the 90s and understand kind of just why this would have been such a painful time for so many Cubans, given kind of how much improvement had been made, how central this had been for decades to suddenly um, experience very much a shock, would be very hard to deal with. Um, And you discuss this in the book, and I think this is where, in my opinion, at least the ethnographic aspect of it really came out, um, because you describe the many ways in which it was challenging painful traumatic but also that a lot of these ways could differ that you know everyone might be dealing with challenges but some were dealing with different challenges or dealing with more or fewer of them so can you maybe take us through some of these nuances and help us explain why and in what ways if everyone's experiencing some amount of blackout and lack of oil there were still some differences of experience yeah
0: for sure and i mean Again, again, sort of the background that like socialism is equal to electrification, um, when the whole elec- like the grid collapses because well, essentially to pr- produce all of that electricity, they relied on on oil, burning oil in power plants, and when when they lost access to that oil from the Soviets, I mean it just put the whole socialist project in jeopardy. Um, so the crisis was was huge in, in energy terms. Um, and, well, the the, sort of, the consequences were really uneven um, from, well, if you start from from the government's point of view, they kind of stick to their guns and their state socialist um, rationale because they start rationing electricity. So what they do is basically to, to, to timetable blackouts, um, making them roll from one district to another throughout the day, throughout the country. Um, and, but. Well, Essentially, that's a the way them to reduce demand, so you don't have to produce as much electricity. And um, electrici- electricians will they they speak speak of this as load shedding. Um, but sort of what's particular to Cuba is that they really want people to still have sort of a roughly equal access to electricity, and they they can achieve that they think through through planning. Uh, so that's sort of where sort of socialist energy justice it's sort of also applicable in this period of of blackouts. Uh, but of course, that principle—I mean, the prin- principle—doesn't, I guess, usually translate into to to the outcome, because um, people really have very different experiences of the blackouts. Um, so, if you take housework, for example, um, so that's a—I guess, like in most places, that's a, a strongly gendered division of labor in Cuba. So, women will cook and clean and take care of kids. Um, but sort of, if you if you look. Beyond that, sort of deeper into it, this meant that it was mainly women who would be making use of electrical appliances uh, in their homes. Um, so well, having like got a washing machine and an iron and a fridge, that made housework easier and saved a lot of time for, for women. But then those were also the appliances that stopped working without electricity. Um, so it, it's really striking. This has been to me To hear stories about the '90s from Cuban women, because uh, they differ so much in my experience from those of men. Um, So that's one example, sort of that that there was a a sort of gendered unevenness to to the blackouts. Um, But there's also other sort of important consequences. Uh, So one which I discuss quite a lot in the book, and which I think is interesting, is that um, small farmers became a really powerful social group during this crisis. and that's interesting, sort of, in the context of the Cuban Revolution, because uh, the idea had been that, like the peasantry as a as a social class, uh, they thought it would, like, basically, automatically wither away because peasants would gradually become these modern farm workers working for the socialist state. Um, and then, in the early '60s, just after the revolution, there were two agrarian reforms, uh, and after them, peasants or small farmers they were the only people who could essentially claim a legal right to land apart from the state itself. And, well, as, as small farmers do, I guess, they, they often had forests growing on their land and so they could start making charcoal and selling it uh, and other things in cities uh, sort of when the crisis hit because uh, there was a demand for for charcoal. So what happened was that like, this, a big informal um, market just opened up in which small farmers were able to, to make a profit. And so socially, that was quite transformative, uh, also in terms of like new economic inequalities opening up.
1: Yeah, which is definitely uh, interesting and important to be aware of. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, We've not really talked about the role of the government during this period in the 90s yet. So I'd like to bring that in uh, because you document that it's not like the government's kind of not doing anything in the 90s. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about kind of the idea that to still try and make it equitable, to still have some amount of access. How did the government try to normalize this kind of forcibly degrowth growth moment in the 90s? And to what extent were these discursive efforts, I suppose, successful?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, you have kind of the, the practical, more material responses like timetabling blackouts um, in order to meet the crisis. But, I mean, obviously, when this big energy-intensive economy that had developed, when when it collapsed, it also threatened to be a huge ideological crisis, didn't it? Um, and, but I guess that sort of brings us then to, to the more cultural aspects of, of energy use. Um, and I think there many interesting aspects of this, but I think one of the key um aspects is this idea of, of the special period because um, the concept of the special period it sort of became um an all-dominant um, concept to describe what was going on in the 90s so both the government and, and sort of people in in households they could say things like okay so we have blackouts and and, and we really need to struggle because we're in the special period um, so it's a it's a kind of meta-historical concept that that developed and, and that became really dominant and so it, it describes kind of this period of time which is in between something normal um and and well it allowed people to to place all of the difficulties they were facing within this much larger historical trajectory it's like what you experienced was something extraordinary and you had to endure it in the special period and then like socialist development could resume um, and, well, if, I, if I'll give some more background, I guess, um, so the concept itself of the special period, initially it was developed by the Cuban military as part of, of like, defense planning. Um, and, well, it, it denoted a situation that might come to pass if Cuba was invaded or completely blockaded by, by the U.S. And so the, the military, they developed policies, policies for what to do in that, they called it special period of, of war. Uh, but then, well, the Soviet Union collapsed and, and the U.S. tightened the blockade of Cuba um, uh, under President Clinton and Fidel Castro, what he then did was to kind of readapt this concept and so he he started saying that we're now in this special period not in a time of war, but in a time of peace when, when socialist development isn't possible anymore for geopolitical reasons but well, eventually it, it will pass and, and sort of progress will be possible again um and well there's been quite a lot written about this in um sort of Cuban studies. Uh, but I think as a as a discursive device it was incredibly successful because it, it created this sense that um Cuba like the Cubans as a, a singular national collective uh, well we are struggling against these external forces uh and, and we have to overcome them. It's a kind of siege mentality. Um and I mean still today it's like El período especial it's like it's the word Cubans use to refer to the 90s, um, and and I think that that really um, illustrates how the government what they did in order to try to normalize this situation. Um, and well, actually, I mean, as a form of political discourse to bring this sort of closer to home, at least or uh, my home, I think it's not too different from say like the Tories' argument about austerity in the UK. It's like for the welfare state to survive, people need to endure these cuts. Uh, we need to live through austerity. Um, it just has to happen um, for the state to survive. And it, it was just a much more powerful discourse in Cuba. Uh, and it resonated much more strongly with Cubans in that historical situation.
1: Mm. No, that, that's, uh, I think, a useful parallel to draw, especially as we get towards discussions about kind of what this might mean beyond Cuba. But before we get there, um, can you tell us a bit about the rise of non-state centralized energy systems that start to happen in Cuba and especially sort of when and how these begin to develop and to what extent this causes political problems?
0: Yeah, well, so I guess sort of in... In Cuba, but sort of in, in when it comes to socialist history more widely, there's this perennial perennial debate about sort of the role of central planning. Should the whole economy be be run by the state, or should there be should sort of private enterprise be allowed some some degree? What's the role of of the formal market, the informal or black market? Um, and those questions were really sort of negotiated and, and open, open for discussion during the nineties in the late 80s, there had been a push towards sort of centralizing everything back into the state again in Cuba. Uh, but in the 90s, um, they, that was kind of a, a, a movement in, in the opposite direction. So, so things started opening up. Um, but so what happened sort of at that point, um, so the government obviously sat down to develop a, a, some kind of new policy, like how should we deal with this this situation? And so they came up with what they called the Programa Energetico, so like the, the energy program, which was a, a, a big policy program uh, rolled out in, kind of throughout the whole state um, economy. And well, the basic principle was that all energy used in Cuba should be sourced from the island. Um, and well, I think, uh, sort of, for me as a geographer, this kind of forces me to think about the links between energy use, and land use. Um, so like, so fossil fuel production, for example, it takes up very little space because you, you extract oil and gas and coal through small drill holes and, and through mines. But renewables, they're always really land intensive. So they take up a lot of space, like solar parks or dams or biofuel plantations. And so for the government to say that like, all energy should be sourced nationally, in a country with very, very small fossil fuel deposits. Well, they were essentially saying we need to radically sort of transform the energy system in spatial terms. So instead of importing energy from Soviet oil fields or from the US, we need to source it from Cuban land. But then the question, of course, rises like, is there enough land? And whose land should we be using to produce all of this energy? And that's why you can see sort of political issues, uh, conflicts starting to, to emerge. Uh, so the government, they they focused on everything from like increasing national oil production to turning the sugar industry into a, an electricity supplier. And um, they asked companies to burn all sorts of waste and and, and whatnot, just everything available. Um, and, and in that way they wanted to keep the state economy going. Um, and I I guess if we want to, we can read all of that into kind of discussions about eco-socialism. So how can you create a socialist economy based on low-carbon renewable energy sources? Uh, Yeah, and then then there's this sort of other aspect because the policy itself, it, it also opened up space for any Cuban to come up with their own infrastructural solutions, sort of source energy from the environment they were living in. So like these small farmers who could make and sell charcoal um, and I think here we might be closer to that degrowth ideal than eco-socialism. Because uh, in, in sort of developing these local solutions, well, people started withdrawing from the state infrastructure. So they reduced their dependence on the state. Uh, and and that was controversial. Um, and I guess if you stick with small farmers, so they, they could source energy from land they owned and they could start trading it for a profit. But then from the state's point of view, that was really problematic because in a socialist economy, like the state should control everything that's produced, including surpluses, so that it can sort of redistribute it equitably among the population. But these small farmers, they, they started commodifying energy and, and um and and that created sort of political tensions.
1: No, absolutely. Um especially given what you've been telling us before about kind of how central this has been consistently now by this point um, for the political project of Cuba. It's no surprise, you know, on the one hand, it's like, well, practically, people need to figure things out. But hang on, there's still the politics of this. Um, And in fact, you have this great sentence um, in the book when you're talking about roughly 2004, quote, infrastructure again became a medium and energy use a moment at which the future political direction of the socialist project was negotiated which i think is a great way to kind of sum up how these threads are coming together is there anything further you'd like to tell us about kind of how this political aspect was negotiated
0: well i mean if you if you if you moved towards some more kind of conceptual discussion um, sort of building on that Cuban experience to how we might think about infrastructure then as a kind of a medium for political um, questions. I guess the one way to think about infrastructure um, is just as a thing. It's like it's, it's sort of there with material qualities and it, like, it smells and it sounds and kind of looks a certain way. Uh, so that's, that's one way to think about the infrastructure, um, which might be the way we usually sort of come across it in our everyday lives. But but you can also think about infrastructure in a in a relational sense. Uh, so it's sort of it's it's something that creates connections. So like um, a grid or a railway or a market, it it, it connects people or it disconnects people. So it, it, it includes or it excludes. Uh, so in that sense, it's sort of infrastructure raises these political questions about say dependence or independence, uh, about distribution and and equality. Uh, and so in thinking through how we should design infrastructure, we are actually sort of discussing these political and taking active stances on these political questions about dependence and independence. Um, and I guess it's sort of that you, you can make a, a productive link to something that happened uh, sort of in the mid-2000s uh, because what happened was that after the Programa Energetico, so this new policy in, in the, adopted in the early 90s, so, well, the black market just blossomed in Cuba. Uh, and so you had like peasants were selling charcoal uh, and you had people kind of nicking fuels from the workplace and just selling them on the street to make some money. Um, and so like this whole new set of infrastructural connections were basically created, which then undermined the the state's dominance of the connections sort of established through state infrastructure. Uh, and so, what happened there in in the mid two thousands, sort of after two thousand four, was that Fidel Castro he he decided to launch what became known as the energy revolution. And there were like lots and lots of different aspects of this energy revolution, uh, but I think uh, one interesting aspect uh, really had to do with energy use in in households, uh, and this sort of ties back into this discussion about infrastructure. Um, so, kind of in in spite of that big. Electrification campaign. So people were still mainly cooking with paraffin or gas because it was just cheaper for the state to, to supply those um, energy sources. But then in the nineties, they couldn't import kind of liquid gas anymore, so the stocks ran out, uh, and people started getting hold of cooking fuels on the black market. But then with with the energy revolution, um, well, the government they sort of they tried to change this to to take back control and close down these 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 black markets and so what what it did was to on the one hand they they essentially made it impossible for black market vendors to get hold of these fuels they stopped producing them and distributing them through sort of state the, the state economy and then on the other hand they started distributing um electrical cooking appliances to all households uh, and well obviously to use them like a, a an electric pressure cooker um, you had to rely on the state's electricity infrastructure. So, kind of, through that reconfiguration of the infrastructure, the government, it, it closed down these parallel connections, economies, and it it sort of re-centralized power back in, in, in the state again. So, it kind of created these new connections between state and, and citizen. Um, and I guess that's sort of, in that context where that, that quote is, I think that's, that's what I'm, I I mean with infrastructure being a medium and Energy use a moment when, the sort of, kind of, poli- the political content of of the socialist project was negotiated or renegotiated.
1: Mm. No, that makes sense. Thank you for taking us through it. What then, if we expand this out, are some of the questions, implications that your book, your findings, what you've been telling us about, raises for the wider conversation that seems to really be growing about degrowth?
0: Yeah, I mean, so Cuban history in itself is incredibly, I think, incredibly interesting. But um, the more fruitful question sort of in, in this time of, of climate change is probably that, like what's, what's the lessons from, from this? Um, and I mean, I think one, one important thing to start off by saying then is that for me, it is problematic to speak of the special period or the Cuban 90s as a time of actual degrowth. Uh, so, so clearly, in a kind of material sense, the economy degrow. So, like less energy and less raw material was processed in in the economy. Um, but for me, this was more of a, a recession than degrowth. And I think it's really important to make a distinction between the two. Uh, so, so degrowth. I mean, it's not about living in in austerity in the same kind of economy or society that we're currently in. Um, I mean that would be awful, wouldn't it? Like, just ask anyone who's already doing that, like using food banks and not being able to pay your, your energy bills. Uh, so instead, degrowth, I mean, it's, it's a utopian project. So as much as it is about living within the ecological limits of the planet, it's, it's a cultural project where we need to find values beyond growth to guide what we do. Um, and so I think there's no escaping that degrowth, it, it has to be a voluntary project um, and so it's like, as a society, we need to collectively and democratically decide to impose limits on ourselves, so that we then can develop like new forms of social life and new relations to to non humans within those self imposed limits. But that wasn't the case in in Cuba in the nineties. Uh, the special period wasn't voluntary, and most Cubans have really sort of traumatic memories of them. Um, but well, having, having said that, obviously, those who make a case for degrowth, uh, and I think just like those making a case for a, a Green New Deal or eco socialism, they can obviously learn things from the Cuban experience. Um, and I guess so, like, two important takeaways for me is that so one of the reasons for why the, the special period probably wasn't a time of proper degrowth is that, uh, like, throughout the crisis, people identified very strongly as socialist citizens. Like this whole concept of the special period, it it spoke to people within this larger narrative of socialist development. Um, And I think for for degrowth to be possible uh, and successful, uh, a degrowth kind of subjectivity has to to emerge. So we'll need to think about ourselves um, as a a different kind of political and and social subject. Um, And I think that's a, a huge challenge for a project like degrowth to be possible um and i guess sort of the the other thing is is that like the question of, of growth or degrowth it hasn't actually been that pronounced in cuba um so like cuba is really being sort of read into these discussions um but in cuba it's instead been these co- kind of questions about dependence and, and autonomy uh, redistribution and self-sufficiency like what political priorities should we have in this particular moment? Um, is equality through redistribution, is that more important than being self-sufficient? Um, and so we kind of we need to make choices about these things. Um, and I mean if we if we look to so things that happen in Cuba that will speak to kind of the degrowth narrative, I think they've tended to to stem from a need to make families and communities and, and cities more self-sufficient. So it has been a kind of localization of economic activity. Um, But then on the contrary, it's like the, the things that have happened that speak more to an eco-socialist narrative, like getting the national grid back together with more renewables in it. Uh, Those initiatives, well, they, they will highlight the importance of distribution and uh, equality instead Uh, And so it's like by building larger scale infrastructures, um, it's by doing that, that redistribution can be achieved. But then those infrastructures will make people more dependent on kind of a a distant political center. Uh, So what should we prioritize? There are important political decisions to be made in, in how we um, configure our infrastructures and, and um, how we think about degrowth or socialism or some kind of more, sustainable capitalism for that matter and i think this is sort of where where debates need to to, to turn from here on regardless of, of your political position like who should be included and excluding from the connections we make and who should own infrastructures and how should it be managed and um, well i guess infrastructure is just uh, like another mode of politics
1: Another mode, yes, but I think as you're making clear, a very important mode um, Mm. and one that perhaps doesn't figure as much in conversation as maybe it should. So thank you for raising kind of a number of questions for all of us to think through uh, in Cuba, but also very much beyond uh, given kind of where we're at (laughs) in (laughs) many countries and as a world. Um, I do have one final question, which May or may not have anything to do with degrowth, though, if you'll <laughs> allow it. Uh, the book obviously is out, available for people to read. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it has anything to do with Cuba or energy that you'd like to highlight? Um,
0: well, so I've sort of in, in parallel. So this book has been in the making for many years. And uh, but I, I've recently also finished um, another book, which is called Discovering Political Ecology. Um, and it, that's a, a textbook for well, the research field known as political ecology, which kind of draws together people from geography and anthropology and development studies, and also the natural sciences. Um, and well, I've written it together with Alex Loftus, who's a, a professor at King's College London. Um, and well, it's now out with Routledge, and it's 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 super exciting to be to be using it in, in teaching. Um, I'm using it for the first time now. Uh, this this term. Um, cool. Yeah, that's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, no, wonderful. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, and of course, if that book wasn't enough uh, for people wanting to use in teaching, of course, they can also use the book we've been discussing in teaching, should they so choose. Again, the title is The Low Carbon Contradiction, Energy Transition, Geopolitics and the Infrastructural State in Cuba, published by the University of California Press in 2023. Gustav, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.